Welcome to 30 for 30 plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Now, just for context, we here at 30 for 30 do proper podcast seasons each spring and fall with four or five documentaries. And in between those seasons, we do this, which are bonus conversations, our chance to highlight some of the work we do here at 30 for 30, both on the film and podcast side. We talk about some of the larger themes, get a little behind the scenes about how it all came together and then maybe play some stuff that got left on the cutting room floor. So today on 30 for 30 Plus, I'm joined by Julia Lowry Henderson, who, as you probably know, just reported out our entire new podcast season five episodes on Bikram Yoga and the guru Bikram Chowdhury. Julia, hey there. And again, I've said this to you many times, but not into a microphone. Congrats on a really amazing season. Thank you. Bikram or Bikram? I say Bikram. Yes. Uh, Some people in the podcast say Bikram. <laughs> my under- we went back and forth on this. We did. We did. But my understanding is that, I mean, when he says it, it sounds closest to Bikram. The Bikram, I think, is what sometimes English speakers do when they deal with something in a foreign language and put a yeah. foreign pronunciation on it. And I guess it's probably worth saying that if you haven't listened to the season, uh, maybe you should stop now and loop back and go do that and then come back here for this conversation. And we should also say that we are doing a live event in New York City. So if you are listening to this before Wednesday, June 13th, come and join us. That's the night of our event, Wednesday, June 13th at Housing Works Bookstore. And Jules, we're going to talk a little bit more about this as, as our conversation goes. But we've just been really impressed with the way that this has broken out into a larger conversation. And we really want to keep this conversation with all of you going. So come and join us in New York on Wednesday, June 13th. There's information at 30for30podcast.com and there's also a link in the show description. Okay, so there's lots to discuss about this series, which you worked on for almost a year and a half. Yes. Uh, and now you're done with it. Now I'm done. You've moved on. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, and we're going to do this in two parts, this week and then next. And uh, let's dive right into one of the things that we do in these bonus conversations each time, which is talk about some of the tape that didn't make it into the final piece. There was a lot of great tape that we had to not include. So is there a particular piece of tape that you regret not having in or you want to highlight as not having made it? Yes. The hardest piece of tape for me not to use was actually a piece of archival tape. And uh, Kier DeLay, the you know star of 2001 Space Odyssey, who was a huge Bikram student, uh, actually has cassette tapes of classes, Bikram teaching in his Beverly Hills studio from 1981 and 1984. Um, when I went to interview Kier, he you know told me that he had recorded Bikram's class because he was moving across the country back to Connecticut, and he you know couldn't imagine being without Bikram and without class. And so he recorded a bunch of classes before he left, and then he did them by himself at home <laughs> for like a decade. And in one of these classes, Bikram starts talking about his singing aspirations and his singing career. And he starts talking specifically about Quincy Jones, who is one of his more famous students. I, that, I, that song I just recorded, but Quincy did it, you know, in the recording center. Yes, this came amazing. He's entertaining a class that's now, you know, past the 45-minute mark. You know, they're on the floor, they're suffering, they're trying to get to the end of class. And he basically says that Quincy Jones was supposed to give Bikram the song Billie Jean to record, but he gave it to Michael Jackson instead. Hold it. Every time he write the song for me and he give it to somebody else, you know. Blue, or no Blue Jean. What's that name? Billie Jean. Supposed to be my song. And Michael Jackson got it. 
That was not right. <laughs> Keep pulling more. Right leg straight. And it's like he's dead serious. It's just, it's so, it's so amazing because it's just Bikram in a moment. Like he's not, at this point, Billie Jean is a huge, huge hit. And he's just so earnestly telling a class that that could have, should have been his song. So what do we make of a moment like that? And I think it gets to this larger thing we grappled with, which is Bikram as clearly an unreliable character, a fabulist. How did you square that uh, when your central character is so all over the place? I mean, to some extent, you have to just do a lot of work to figure out what are the boundaries of that person's uh, reality box? Like, where where does truth do, does truth even exist at all with them? Where does it begin? Where does it end? And and what is the field of fabrication that surrounds them? And and I think the more I learned about Bikram, and the more I came to be clear about what is that field of fabrication, how does he use it, how does it shift, how does it change, the easier it became to understand how how to deal with him as a character, how to use things that he says, mm-hmm. how to frame those things that he says. That is, you know, classic Bikram taking credit for something that is completely ostentatious and beyond the realm of reality. And you know, he creates this thing immediately where you kind of know. I mean, I can't imagine anyone hearing that tidbit and fully believing it. But Quincy Jones was a student of his. Yes. So there's always that mix, right? Exactly. And it's sort of like Michael Jackson's record is out. Bikram's thanked in the liner notes to Thriller. You know, like no one's really hurt by this little like fabrication of his, yeah. right? And he is thanked in the liner notes to Thriller. I don't yes, want to gloss is. that over. It's amazing. You can go and see it. And, and there he is. Um, so... You know, but I think one of the goals for our piece um, is that we really wanted to show, this is why we took five episodes, the slippery slope and the slow build from, you know, a little white lie fabrication about Quincy Jones to then truly awful behavior. And that there is a, a spectrum there and there's a connection there and there's this universe of power and fabrication and delusion that Bikram built up around himself over decades that then created the space for him to behave in these awful ways. So that kind of makes it both not matter and really matter. Exactly. I mean, I think one of Bikram's biggest lessons for all of us is that you can never discount dishonesty or you can never discount something that is untruthful, especially if it's knowingly untruthful, it doesn't stay innocent. And I think once you look at where where it went to, you can look back and wonder if it ever was innocent. Like, is yeah. it fair to ever have qualified any of these exaggerations on his part as innocent? So a few other things that didn't end up in the final episode are some of these little details about his life and his backstory that we found are fabrication. So he has this origin story of how he met his guru by kicking a soccer ball. And you've discovered with the help of some others that this is basically a story that was stolen from someone else. We couldn't really find a way to, to debunk that um, in the structure of our piece. But then there's these larger questions about authenticity, his role as a guru. And I remember you fighting, if that's the right word, but, you know, really kind of pushing back with us as your editors and saying, we really need to include this notion that Bikram talked about himself as a yoga champion and having won all of these yoga championships in India before he came to the United States. And we really need to take time to debunk that, which we do in in the final episode. Why was it so important 
for that particular part of his origin story to be something that, that you lingered on? I think with any character you approach, you want to understand their backstory to understand them, but you also want to understand in a story like this where you know, you're trying to understand how this person got this power that he abused. You want to understand where that power came from. And so a huge part of my research and my reporting was pulling that thread all the way out to see, like, where does this power start and what's at the core of it? And at the center of Bikram's power, it's all built on the story he told of himself as yoga prodigy, real deal yogi from Calcutta, who was a champion. I was a All India national champion three times, 11, 12, 13, unbeaten. Fourth year, when I went to compete, the whole country complained that if Bikram compete, nobody ever win. So they make law, you cannot compete more than once. Jerome Armstrong, who is a person I met in doing research for this, who's looked a lot into the Bikram's lineage, who wrote a book about the lineage Bikram flows out of, who, you know, ended up doing a lot of work on Bikram's backstory himself and research. You know, he, you know, he learned in Calcutta what I ended up learning, you know, that Bikram was really a masseur first and foremost. That was his specialty. He was not a high level expert in advanced yoga. That, at least I know very well. And to me, that was the most important piece of it. Everything, every lie he told, every exaggeration he made, every ounce of power he amassed, every bit of his reputation came from the fact that he said these things about himself and they were held to be true and no one questioned them. And as I found out they were not true, it became really important to me that we address those. This you you mentioned Jerome Armstrong, who when you went to India and talked about the the lineage, which some of my favorite stuff in the piece is just about understanding this lineage of yoga, just because I think it's interesting, but also I think debunks a lot of our notions of the mix of spirituality and physicality in yoga itself. Jerome Armstrong is writing about this and and was instrumental to us in understanding that. Do you think that if Bikram had come to America and Americans had somehow understood or been willing to be a little more skeptical about the, the the larger yoga story he was telling. I have this authenticity. I'm the first one to uh, to marry physical culture and yoga, which we then show wasn't really his idea. Um, do you think he wouldn't have taken off in the way he did? I mean, the thing he had going for him was his charisma, you know, and so I think there's a good chance he still would have become as important to those celebrities in that moment in the 70s. You know, he would have been the person physically here, disseminating this yoga technique, uh, earning their trust, winning them over, you know, helping them lose weight and get in shape for their next role. But would he have been able to attach his name to a brand? I think that becomes less likely. Mm -hmm. Had any knowledge of his guru, Bishnu Ghosh, come to the United States either with him or before him, he would have just been seen as a disciple of that. I think he would have been an incredibly popular teacher and disciple of that, but I think he still would have been a disciple. I think the fact that there was no knowledge and no transparency allowed him to come in and start to claim extreme ownership over it. And I think that it took Bikram a couple of years to realize that he had complete power over his story here, and yeah. that's when he makes it his. And we got some really interesting notes about this and, and asking us to explore a little bit more. 
this question of authenticity and just this, you know, and some of the sort of race and class and exoticism elements in the Bikram story. Um, and I found it fascinating and kind of heartbreaking in, in that he was willing to basically let those things play both ways and just be, you know, whenever it was most convenient for him. So there were moments where he was saying, I'm not a spiritual guru. Uh, I'm here to kick your butt and and turn this into a fitness craze. But then there's clearly moments where he is willing to let Americans' misconceptions about yoga and India and exoticism and spirituality work in his favor and just sort of let people think of him as this inherently spiritual and exotic person. Uh, So he kind of understood all the racial elements that were part of his arrival. Absolutely. He understood that so well, and he's always used that in his favor uh, when it's convenient. He has a really, it feels like he has a very complicated relationship to his desire to flourish in America and his desire to prove himself back home in India. And it feels like that conflict really drives a lot of his behavior. But he knew, he understood instantly when he got here that there is a huge percentage of the population that would judge him solely on the color of his skin and his place of origin, and that if he attached that to yoga, it gave him an authenticity. It would it would quiet them, it would keep them mm-hmm. from questioning, and it would give him an immense leeway, and he took full advantage of it. So we've been talking a fair amount about Bikram Chowdhury's past, but of course there is a present day story as well that we should talk about. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. I want to invite all of you from all over the world to teacher training with your friend, with your student, with your uh, school owner, family, children, everybody. You will get the results that have been promised to you. We here at 30 for 30, you know, we mostly tell historical documentaries. That's what this story is. We go back 30 years, but we do bring it to the present. And this really is different than a lot of other 30 for 30s in that there is a Bikram story right now. So we say this in episode five, but Bikram Chowdhury is out there in the world. And moreover, the thing I find particularly galling, to be perfectly honest, is that he's doing these teacher trainings. And this is, as we show in the in the documentary, where so many of these awful things took place. So how, I don't know, how do we square that? How do we square that this guy's still out there? I think it's one of the things that makes this like fascinating and and powerful to me is that there's not like he hasn't been really held accountable there's no like bow tied on this like he hasn't had to step down like he hasn't been charged with anything there you know he hasn't suffered those consequences he's still leading a teacher training and he's there and it's problematic in a way i mean we talked to john bryan who's been placed as you know ceo trying to navigate this company through bankruptcy and hoping to bring it out on the other side to not only resolve the debts but to you know keep bikram yoga as a name and a brand alive and you know he raised the really uncomfortable point or i don't think he thought it was uncomfortable i did (laughs) that uh, 
bankruptcy, once this bankruptcy is resolved, it's going to complicate things even further. I mean, right now, there feels like there's this buffer zone, right? Because there's this warrant for Bikram's arrest in the United States, so he's not in the United States. And, and that's for not paying back some of the settlements, Exactly. Right? It's not he's going to be arrested because he's been accused of rape or sexual assault. It's, a, it's about the civil lawsuits. Exactly. If I do my job properly and the trustee does all of our jobs properly, the demands will be satisfied. And therefore, the warrants would be... Uh, would would no longer have any validity. They're not necessary. Bankruptcy can move pretty quickly. It's designed to. I mean, nothing with Bikram ever goes the way it's supposed to. So, yeah. you know, who knows how this one will play out. But, you know, there will be some sort of resolution at some point. And who knows then where he ends up and what he's allowed to do. I think you do a really amazing job in the fifth episode describing how difficult... A relationship so many of the people who have done Bikram Yoga have with him and the brand. What? How, how did you come to understand people going through that process? I mean, there's a fierce loyalty to him still. Um, you know, every group has its true believers and there is still a really healthy, vocal, adamant group of true believers in the Bikram circle. And are these people who think these are just accusations against them and he hasn't uh, you know, been convicted in a court for these accusations and so we presume innocence? Or are these people who are putting that aside or reconciling that and finding devotion in other ways? I can't speak for all of them, but uh, those that I spoke to who f- I would categorize as true believers who would be people who are ready to welcome him back you know, whenever that may be, uh, mostly presents as people that either do not believe the accusations or haven't given themselves the space to allow the reality of the accusations to set in. And so they hide, maybe it's not fair to say hide, but it feels to me like they hide behind excuses like, well, he was never charged with anything. Our legal system would take care of it if it was true. Or the victim shaming that these young women should have known better that, you know, Bikram has a reputation, you know, you shouldn't be alone with him. I would never have been alone with him. There are a lot of people who, you know, when asked about this stuff, offer up, you know, I've been alone with him so many times and nothing has ever happened. Uh, You know, there are just a lot of people that are not ready to really accept what an abuser is. You know, abusers do not abuse everyone that come in their orbit. They specifically target people. They have patterns, they have techniques. Um, And there are a lot of people that, are really willing to not examine that side of Bikram because it's not a side that they ever firsthand witnessed. So many of the patterns you just described and the dynamic you're laying out, both right now and in the piece itself, have these echoes to the Me Too movement. Uh, We should tell listeners that we started reporting this before Me Too exploded, um, and it became a really interesting process to, to see how this was sort of a community that had its Me Too moment before the world had its Me Too moment. What parallels do you see and what differences do you see? You know, I think it is very much a Me Too story. Uh, It's just that this community didn't have any framework or sort of public momentum or support when all of this broke. And so I think it happened in a context that wasn't ready for it you Mm -hmm. know like they there wasn't you know there was no solidarity 
and a hashtag. There was no real solidarity and power in coming forward in numbers. People writing about it, reporting on it, didn't have the same sensitivity or vocabulary that they were using towards it. There was just an intense amount of shame. I think because it's such a, the term family and yoga family is used so wide, widely inside of this uh, world that, you know, I really think that when this happened, it initially felt really like an incest case breaking. Mm-hmm. And um, someone says that in the podcast and makes that analogy. Yeah. And it's, you know, Bikram was very much like the father of this family mm-hmm. for better or worse. And actually dethroning or kicking out a father is a very hard and messy thing. We were in this story for almost a year before Me Too broke. And I remember thinking when Me Too became a thing, like that it was going to crack the story wide open, right? I really thought, okay, this it's going to get easier now. You know, people are going to be less guarded. Some of these people that have said no to me, they don't want to talk, are going to talk. Um, and I, I did not find that. It was really sort of shocking to me. I, I think that, you know, at the point we're at now, people are starting to open up and to accept and to grapple in a in a more open way. But, you know, I think they actually, re- there was this moment of recognition that I heard from a lot of sources where they realized that they were going to get compared to Me Too and they realized yeah. their story was going to get pulled into this and, and they kind of doubled down on that desire for like privacy and protection. I should say that the next episode, we're going to talk more about your reporting process, your role in this community. And so we'll save some of these more kind of Jules's experience and the and the connections you made for part two of the podcast. And this episode, we'll talk a little bit more about where this story stands right now. One more note on Me Too that makes it different is, as we were just saying, Bikram is still out there and he's still doing his thing. I mean, it's the equivalent of Harvey Weinstein being at Khan or whatever at this moment. And that's a fundamental difference. Another thing wrapped up in all of this, you sort of hinted at it, was these these notions of culpability and complicity on the part of the community in general. And when this broke, there was assessing it as a, a thing that happened, but then everyone started to assess their role in it. You know, it feels like that was and is maybe the hardest part of all of this for people. Um, it just, it, it kind of hits at like the very core of you. I mean, if you... If you partake in something and you believe in something and you support something, you build your life around something, you dedicate your life, your livelihood to something, and then you find out that that thing is somehow tainted, that it's 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 bad or it's corrupt or something terrible happened there, and you are left to, you know, if you if you have the self-awareness to reflect on the fact that you somehow had a role in that thing's existence, you have to be able to understand what you saw and what you didn't see and ways in which you complied with a system that was being built and manipulated in order to allow these abuses to happen. And it's a really, for a lot of people I talked to, you can tell it was an incredibly painful exercise. You know, looking back, you could say, well, he was in a position of power and he abused his power. Well, I'm like, who gave him that power? Who thinks it's normal that people have to go massage the guru like why would you think that is normal I thought about you know begging this girl to go to his room and I just I'm powerful I own a studio like why on earth would I have ever done this 
A, I'm sorry. And, and B, um, I'm sorry. A, I'm sorry. B, I'm sorry. Bikram's fall from grace is its own painful thing, but there are a lot of people I talk to who really seem to hurt as much, if not more, from watching the other people around them fall too. You know, whether it's Rajashree, who was Bikram's wife and who really did come across as a calming, kind, genuine, authentic force, whether it was, you know, other studio owners or senior teachers who don't stand up or they don't ask him to be held accountable in the way that it feels like he ought to. And so, you know, you're just, I think that process of how did I make this worse and how did people that I really trusted and looked up to make it worse? Like that has been a really, a really thorny and difficult path for a lot of people. And I think one of the most powerful things that's happened, and we see this in the case of particularly of, of Liz Winfield, who took that pain and those questions of complicity and kind of turned it into advocacy. And I think a lot of people in this community, and we're seeing it in other communities as well, or that's part of their their healing process and their reckoning. Um, we need to start to, to wrap up here. Again, we'll have a second part of this focused a little more on Julia's story and her reporting. Coming back to where we started, a few things that didn't make it into the, the episode itself. One thing we didn't ever really stop and address, and we thought about whether we would or not, and just didn't make it in for time, um, does Bikram yoga work? It's, this is really fascinating. There's so little scientific study on this. I mean, and part of that is just in general that anyone who's done a study out there, you know, we read that study, we reached out to those people, we talked to those people. I talked to a lot of them on tape. Um, and it was really insightful in ways, but it also just to me laid bare like how far we are from having those answers. You know, we're just starting scientifically to really have studies that back this premise that, you know, yoga in general, hatha yoga, moving the body, breath, postures, those things do contribute in positive ways, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and certainly Bikram yoga falls under that. Um, you know, there's this question, you know, there's a study that says that like, you don't need the heat. If you did this series in a cold room, you would burn just as many calories. Um, so there are a lot of question marks, which I think for us felt like that would be its own separate series yeah. in and of itself to go there. Um, but I sort of, at the end of the day, I think I agree with Benjamin Lore that at a certain point, you know, if someone says this saved their life yeah. and that's their truth, then that's their truth. Um, and it's, not worth arguing with them over that, especially because there's not any conclusive scientific evidence that, you know, that's not the thing that saved their life. Um, and the number of people that do claim that or do credit this with, you know, making them better physically or just as a person, it's a huge number. Um, and I think that's why it felt like not going into those weeds and trying to figure it out made sense. Okay. Julia Lowry Henderson, thank you as always. This has been fun. And Thank we'll you. do part two in a week. Yes. So for that, um, as I mentioned, we'll talk about Jules's reporting as well. But also, we can answer any questions that you have. So a bunch of people have already been getting in touch with questions. If there's something you want to ask Julia or any of us about our reporting experience or putting this series together, send us an email, 30for30podcasts at ESPN.com, or find us on Twitter, and we will answer some of your questions next week. And while you're still listening, I just want to say thanks to everyone who has tweeted or posted on Facebook or left a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts 
podcast or just told someone about the show, this is really finding an audience mostly through word of mouth. So help spread the word and tell people that it's just there to dive into and binge listen to whenever they have a chance. And don't forget about that live event Wednesday, June 13th in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with lots more.